Welcome back, listeners. I am Jeff Cross, your host of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR. As a follow-up from last week's episode, Some Good News Part 1, we're going to continue that conversation today with four more local businesses that are making a big impact on our community. Um, So let's jump right in. We are very excited to have with us today Bob Arnold, who's the CEO of Family Centers. Bob's joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Welcome, Bob. Good to be here, Jeff. We're excited to have you. So let's just dive right in. I know time is precious. And I want to start, if if you would, Bob, to just kind of take a few minutes and uh, and um, explain what you guys do at the Family Center. Let our listeners know what's your mission, what's your core services, what are you guys all about? Well, um, our mission at Family Centers is a pretty broad mission. It's to empower children, adults, families, and communities to realize their potential. And over the last couple of years, we've refined our vision, which is creating a community that provides opportunity for all. We are an organization that spans several different industries. We are in the health care area. We run some school-based health clinics. We run a community health clinic uh, and do some medical case management. We also run a whole bunch of social services, social work service outreach, services that help people to get jobs and keep keep jobs. We have literacy programs for people who are um, struggling with language. In addition, we have a third category, which is our opportunities in education. So we run early education services from birth to five, and we also run a number of two-generational programs that work with young children up to teenagers and involve work with their parents as well. So we're pretty broad, and I guess I would say that if you were to boil down the mission and the vision, we're really combating the opportunity gap that so many families are facing. And in lower Fairfield County, where we're located, while there's a great deal of wealth and a highly educated population in most of our towns and and in our cities, we also have a very large population of families who immigrated here from many other countries. There's a great disparity between what the families who are asset limited have and those with substantial assets. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think people sometimes, as soon as they hear Fairfield County, they think, oh, you know, everyone's fine down there. They, they, there's not an underserved or, or, or disadvantaged population in any way down there, and it's just not true. So Bob, here, here's the big question, right? How have your operations changed since March, and it was really kind of mid-March when the COVID-19, really, it just seemed to happen overnight or over a weekend. It it went from like, ah, you know, it's not going to be too bad to, oh boy, life is really changing here. Uh, So how's it it changed for a family center? I guess the first big challenge for family centers was to practically overnight convert from being a bricks and mortar, in-person operation um, to a virtual organization that delivers almost all of our services online. That was a big jump, and it happened in a very short period of time. 
um, which actually surprised myself and, and our team that it could happen that quickly. Uh, fortunately, most of our services were fairly easy to adapt to online platforms. We have a few that are not, they remain huge challenges, but to go overnight to online platforms required some uh, immediate technology upgrades, as you might imagine. While we, we were always doing some things um, remotely and online, all of our mental health, all of our um, outreach programs, uh, all contact for the most part with clients, with a few exceptions, went right onto um, online platforms. And, and some of them, because of the nature of the work in the, the healthcare area, had to be HIPAA compliant. So there was a, a lot of stuff that happened uh, rather quickly. Bob, had, had any of your services been delivered online prior to COVID or, or was that a, a, a completely new way for you to deliver your, your services? We have always had some online supports, phone calls and things for, for elderly clients, but mostly our services were in person. Now, we, we run the health clinics. They've pretty much gone virtual except for our community health clinic, which still has some uh, primary care that we're delivering through the clinic. But we're doing screening online to make sure that it's not something that could be diagnosed and treated in a conversation like this, as opposed to having to actually physically come into a clinic. We do dental work, but now we're only doing it for emergency situations. But having said that, you know, outside of those few in-person things that we're still doing, including some COVID-19 testing, because we're testing through our clinic, um, everything else is up on a platform. And uh, while there were some challenges initially, let's say for our literacy volunteer program, once people got used to it, and we got the right kind of technology to people, um, we find that there's been great adaptation to this transition. It's amazing how people can, can adapt and, and change and pivot like that when, when they need to. So the way that you're delivering your services uh, to folks has changed obviously in a big way, but what about the actual needs of your stakeholders? Has COVID changed the services that they're needing or expecting from you in any way? Absolutely, no question about it. We have these two generational programs that work with um, children who really are in that achievement gap space and are at risk of not succeeding academically. So in those programs, we work with both the child but also with the parent. A lot of these parents are challenged because they don't have much of a formal education themselves. We've got a lot of parents in our programs who didn't really complete elementary school in their country of origin. So it's very difficult for them to be the primary or co-educator of their child unless they get a lot of help and assistance. The child, on the other hand, can't get the typical kind of 
um, homework supervision and assistance from the parent at home. Now you can imagine when school is taken out of the equation, these children are at much greater risk of sliding backwards because they don't have the kind of parental oversight and guidance that a child who has a parent with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree during this situation. It's not that these parents are very well-meaning and they love their child, they want the best for them, but they just are out of their element. So in some of those programs, we're having to do more now with the parents and connect with the child as well um, remotely to do some of the things that we would do in person around coaching and tutoring. It's almost as if it's created new sort of stakeholders. I mean, I know you were working with the parents of the kids before, but in other words, you've got to now teach them how to be teachers. Am I understanding that correctly? Like you've got new stakeholders here. That's exactly right. We, we, have, to, we have to guide them and, and coach them mm. in some ways that we didn't have to before. Yeah. You know, there are silver linings to everything, Jeff. Mm. Um, we're seeing that our teams are getting very creative in figuring out how to do that because the need is there. And, and we've got a very adept team, uh, teams across our whole organization who are used to sort of pivoting, if you will, to meet needs as they change. Uh, another thing that we've seen, which I think is sort of fascinating, with everybody um, sequestered at home and sheltering in place, you might imagine that people who were having mental health issues, those issues could be exacerbated while people are um, contained, sometimes in small quarters with lots of family members. Tensions rise, anxieties rise. Mm -hmm. So our mental health service, which has always been quite large, has gotten even bigger. Our team of clinicians have really stepped up to the challenge, but I will say, one of the things that they report is while there's a lot you can do, it's very effective doing mental health on a um, virtual platform. It's also very tiring because you're used to working right with the person. It's easier to read body language and, and secondary communication in person than it is being on a screen all day by and after another. And, and they also find, you know, when we were doing inpatient in the building sessions, you had a pretty predictable cancellation rate. If you were scheduled to see five people in the day, somebody would inevitably cancel. The virtual world, people hardly ever cancel. <laughs> right. So, le there, so there's less time for, for the, the therapist, for the provider to kind of, uh, you know, replenish, recharge the batteries. Uh, they're probably, you know, the demand is up and, and uh, probably time between appointments is down. Yeah, I, I can imagine it's putting a, a, a big strain on them. It's exhausting for mental health clinicians. And, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do in that program, and I think, I hope we're doing it well, is to nurture and take care of our clinicians. So we've got support groups going for them because they're taking in a lot and they don't have, as you said, a lot of transition time. Mm. They're, they're working longer hours, 
more clients, more intake, and they're also taking in a lot of heavy duty stuff because you're getting deeper depressions, more anxiety. The anxiety is exacerbated by the fact that a lot of people have lost their jobs. They don't know where their rent money is going to come from. They don't know where, how they'll buy food. And this is very upsetting to people. And, and are the mental health clinicians, uh, do they also deal with folks in crisis, emergent uh, situations? And, it, and if so, I imagine that that has spiked as well. Am I right? That has spiked as well. I mean, over the past several weeks, for instance, we had a couple of situations where women um, who, have, who have been prior to this in abusive relationships are now contained in close quarters with their abuser. And um, we've had to help two of them to uh, move out and, and find another living situation with their children. So um, yes, you know, we're seeing all kinds of um, additional things that there were other ways to alleviate before the COVID-19. Now people have to be very careful. And so yeah. it's, it's pushing other buttons, essentially. Bob, do you also uh, rely on volunteers at family centers? Or do you have a volunteer um, core, if you will? We have all kinds of volunteers. So we have volunteers who come from businesses, corporate groups, um, school groups, who come out and they want to do a volunteer project at the organization. They may do, um, they may do a day of beautification. Um, some volunteers in, in the business sector would take in uh, half a dozen of our vocational clients and do a work day with them. So they do some interview prep, some, uh, some prep around putting together a resume, how to present yourself, all of that skill building kinds of things. Well, that's all, that sort of stuff has stopped. But we also have some volunteers who do more intensive work with us. So we've got some volunteers who've been trained who work in our bereavement programs. And our bereavement programs are still operating and they're online. So we're doing both groups and individual loss and bereavement um, supports right online. We also have volunteers who work in our literacy program. And those volunteers have transitioned quite well to online literacy training. Mm. And, uh, and their groups are larger than they used to be because we had a lot of people who were hourly workers or day workers who would only join a literacy group if they didn't have work for the day or the week. And now many of them don't have work at all. So it's the silver lining for them is that they can really work on improving their English. And the reality is if you can improve your English, you can definitely improve your job prospects. So it sounds like you're keeping the volunteers pretty well engaged throughout this. Well, some of them we are, and, yeah. and some, some it's a challenge. A lot, of, a lot of people in the community who contribute money would also like to contribute time. They'd like to be part of the solution. So we do have some families who are using this time 
to put together care packages with their children and explain to them that there are other families in the community who really are having a difficult time and they need things. They need arts and crafts and educational materials. So we've got them putting care packages together for families. Um, some are putting together food packages and, and that's very nice too. Um, we have a young group of uh, associate board members who are around late 20s, early 30s, and they did a project uh, a week or two ago where they got together a lot of gardening supplies, um, packets of seeds and soil and, and accoutrement to go with it, and, and uh, provided that to some of the children in our programs so that they could start to do some, create some small home gardens and watch things grow and, and learn about that um, during this time. So that was a sort of creative um, idea. And so where we can, we're still trying to use volunteers. It is very challenging because we could use volunteers to deliver things, but people are very cautious and need to be about social distancing and getting out and having any direct interaction. So if we do deliver, we usually will contact the person, say it's right at your door so that they could come and get whatever it is. But there's a great volunteer spirit out there, Jeff. As soon as we can get out from under the intensity of this sequester period, we'll see a lot of volunteering pick up again, even more than it is right now. Yeah, like you said, one of the, that, that will be one of the silver linings that comes out of this, which is great. What other challenges are, are, are you face with the COVID-19? We have a lot of services inside family, family centers that we're able to draw upon to help our own teams to keep going and to support our professionals. It's a very scary time for them as well. And even those that are working at home, they're trying to balance doing their job with taking care of their own children now that they don't have childcare and they don't have schools to send the children to. So that's a big challenge, keeping a workforce going when they're operating from home and trying to balance the, the, the needs there with their professional requirements. The other thing that's sort of been challenging, and we've tried to be a helper to our partner organizations, is we've got partner organizations that are also on the front lines. And um, their professionals are burning out. So we're doing some support groups through our mental health services for them as well. And um, it's a very scary thing for them. To, to get up and go in every day and do things that put yourself at risk. While people do it, there's a need for debriefing and support. So, um, you know, that's been a challenge in our industry. And we've been trying to help not only ourselves with it, but our, our um, partner organizations. We've talked already about some silver linings. And so any other, you know, feel-good stories, good news that you want to share with the listeners? We have lots of you know feel good stories. Our our early education programs had to stop sometime in the middle of March, and we our our three and four year old classrooms, those children were out of school, in school one day, out of school the next, and that was it for a couple of months. And these children really missed their teachers, and our teachers got so creative about setting up 
Zoom classrooms with them several days a week. And the teachers have been doing drive-bys to visit their students so that their students come outside and the teachers in the car and they could talk to them. And, and, and we videoed some of them. And I just can't tell you how overwhelming it is for some of these children to just see their teacher who they saw every day and they took for granted. And now the teacher turns up at their house and it's like a celebrity has arrived. They just <laughs> get so excited yeah. um, because there's such a strong attachment. And we take this stuff for granted all the time because that's how it is. But once you lose something like that, and then you get a glimpse of it again, you see how important and fundamental it is to, to people's lives. There are um, things that will, positive things that will come out of this. I think that some of the work that um, we're doing remotely for mental health will uh, continue because there are people who didn't access mental health before because they either couldn't get themselves to where the appointment was, or they were too anxious to leave their house. Yeah, I think that's huge. I, I, that that uh, that positive, the, the the sort of awareness uh, of of behavioral health uh, issues and um, people getting more access to it and people getting the help that they need. I, I think that's one of the, the 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 biggest you know call it benefits, if, if you will, or positives that are going to come out of all of this. Um, and I think that's great that you guys are front, front and center on that. And, and, and just going back to your other example of the kids and now they, they, you know, you don't know what you have until it's gone, the old saying, right? And so I think if we can all come out of this a little bit, a little bit more appreciative of some of the, the people in our lives and the simpler things in life and the things we took for granted and maybe come out of it a, a kinder, gentler, you know, a nation that would be uh, and world i guess maybe maybe it will all be worth it all the, the pain yeah no i couldn't agree with you more um i i i'm hopeful and i think there certainly are signs that people are being sensitized in a way that they haven't been sensitized before bob what, what is the one ask that you would have for those listening right now i would ask everybody to keep in mind that this um, crisis is affecting all parts of the community in different ways, and it's not an even playing field. And um, I would encourage everyone to do um, all that they can to support your community and the organizations that are in your community that are helping families in need. Some families are really in distress. And I, I hope your family is not one of them, but if you're a family that's not in distress, be sensitive to the ones that are and, mm. and do what you can on a local basis to help those families because they're part of our community. And, and this is a time more than ever that we really have to stand by each other. Yeah, I love that. Uh, that, that that's a great way to, that's a great way to end that, that last line. Bob Arnold. CEO, long-standing CEO of Family Centers. Thank, thanks so much for joining us, but I'm not gonna let you go yet because b before we go, uh, we ask every guest to um, answer a few rapid fire questions so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Is that, does that sound good to you? 
Oh, it sounds great. First thing that comes to mind. Don't don't take too much time here. So cats or dogs? Dogs. Favorite band? Beach Boys. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? To cure illness. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be doing? I might have been a lawyer. And, and lastly, our theme at One Digital this year is being bold. Bob, what does that mean to you? What does being bold mean to you? Being bold means pushing pushing the limits and, and, and trying to do more than you um, think is possible. Um, I guess maybe punching above your weight. Uh, just taking, taking a chance, especially when it means that others will benefit. Awesome. Thanks again, again, Bob, for joining us today on this podcast. Great. Thank you, Jeff. So joining us on the episode today, we have Lena Rodriguez, who's the president and CEO of Community Renewal Team, or we'll shorten that to CRT. Welcome to the podcast, Lena. Thank you. Glad to be here, Jeff. Before we get into the uh, into sort of the meat of the episode, it, why don't you take a couple of minutes, Lena, and describe for our listeners what it is that you do at CRT? What's your mission? Who are you serving? How are you serving the community uh, through your efforts at CRT? Sure. So CRT is what is called the Community Action Agency. So we've been around now for 56 years. Um, we're an anti-poverty agency. Um, we came out of the 60s movement of the war on poverty. So community action agencies across the country, um, we have about 1,100 sister agencies. Um, they cover, each of the agencies cover a specific geographic area. And the whole idea of community action was to basically, um, the federal government had designed community action to give the um, grassroots organizations a block fund, which is called the Community Services Block Fund, and then the community action agencies in each of the areas that they serve would design programming that met the needs of that particular community. So going back to the 60s is when it started with the war on poverty with the Lyndon Johnson movement, um, it's evolved since then. So community action agencies have evolved. The beauty of community action agencies is that they've evolved based on the needs of the community and have designed programming around those needs for the last 56 years. So speaking of evolving, uh, <laughs> I, yes, I guess there's, yes. <laughs> there's, there's probably been some, some serious uh, evolving over the last couple of months. So, so, you know, what are some of the challenges that COVID-19 has presented to CRT? So COVID-19, we're an organization that basically addressed the needs of people. So we're in the business of people. So we're in contact with hundreds of thousands of people every day. I mean, CRT serves close to 100,000 people annually, individuals. And we have wow. over, over 40 different locations. So people come into my office, our offices for case management. They come in for energy assistance. They come in for uh, clinics for behavioral health services. Um, we run an assisted living facility where we have 100 units of, of um, uh, seniors. Um, we have supportive housing programs. We have a housing program 
which is for grandparents who have custody of their grandchildren. Um, so all of most of all of our workers are mostly in the field, directly working with individuals in the field. So you can imagine now that we have to close our doors um, to traffic, right? To people coming into foot traffic, coming into our facility. That was the beginning of the major problem that we had in terms of how do we design our organization to work remotely when our main contact is with people. So not only for us to be equipped to, to work remotely, but also how do the folks that we serve, how do they contact us remotely to be able to get the services that they have been getting? So that was our number one challenge. And that was a huge challenge, but I will tell you that I was very, very pleased um, with my team um, who we had, we have been meeting three or four times a week to kind of design that out and what that looked like program by program and to be able to get the equipment that was needed to be to have people work from home, those who can, and to really strategize how we were going to make that work. That was the major one challenge. Um, and it was it was pretty challenging, but we were stabilized probably within a good three weeks period of time. We were able to do that. So really pretty, pretty proud of that with the with 600 employees that we have here. Yeah, that, that's great. So you had to kind of move a, a lot or most of what you do to this remote environment, including the, the learning. You have like early childhood development programs, I know, and adult education. And have there been, are there new needs that your stakeholders have? Have, have there been sort of newly emerging needs that you've had to respond to as a result of this pandemic? So we've got, I mean, every day is something new. Our programming and the beauty of, of, of community action is that it's nimble. So we serve the community. So every day there are different needs, there are different challenges, different opportunities. Um, so we know that, for example, our energy assistance program, people cannot come in to apply for energy assistance. So they had to apply online. So we changed our way we do business so that people could apply online. We could process applications online. We were basically having a, an, an outbox where people would come in and drop off their, their, uh, their, their materials, their backup for the application process. Um, so just the way we carried out business and the way we got the information out through our uh, Facebook page, through our social media to be able to access, to get the information out to clients because not all, all of our clients have computers. And actually in this time, the libraries are closed, which is where our, most of our clients go to access computers and in our computer labs. So we have computer labs in, um, in a number of our different locations where the client, clients, customers can come and access the computer and process applications and so forth online. Those things will close off. So trying to get the word out through social media, through flyers and, and communicating phone calls to the clients, making sure that the case managers followed up with all of the, the folks that they were working with so that we can develop a different way to communicate and a different way for them to continue to access services. So um, all of that was a, is a rush to get things done to make sure that the folks that we serve continue to get served and didn't feel that high anxiety that you get when you don't have access to those services anymore. So, yeah. Alina, have you have you kept any of the uh, physical locations? Of, you you mentioned that you have actually computer labs that you offer typically, and you've had to close those down. Have you had to keep any of them open and 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 allow any of your clients to kind of come in to? access those or, or did you have to just com completely shut those down? Yeah, we had to shut those down. We went through all of our facilities to see what can we do to assess. Mm -hmm. um, 
where the computer labs were located were two inside the in, into the office. So what, traffic would have to go through inside the office and be. So the idea was to keep contact away from people. This would yeah. allow that to happen. Um, but we do have all of our services remained open um, just remotely. I mean, although we do have some services that are by appointment only. So for example, if we had folks, if we had an issue with, um, even though there's a moratorium right now on shutoffs, on utility shutoffs, but if there was a need for a client to come in and meet with an energy worker on an energy issue, we would make an appointment, we would make arrangements to make sure that that was a safe meeting, you know, with PPE and so on and so forth. Our behavioral health services are still open. Um, so those are open to the public because those are basically emergency services. Um, so we would have, we did a lot of telehealth with our behavioral health uh, clients. So we were able to do telehealth. And in addition to that, if a client needed to come in, they can come in and make an appointment with, uh, with a clinician. Um, and we will make sure, of course, that that meeting was a, a safe and healthy meeting too, with the proper PPE, so yes. Had you been, had you been doing uh, telehealth, behavioral health consultations prior to COVID, or, or is that something you did just as, as a response to this? No, no, we had been doing it. We had yeah. been doing it, we, uh, but not at the level that we weren't approved at the level uh, that we are approved now to be able to do it because now it's basically the main way that, uh, that it is to be done under this environment. But for the most part, we would have individuals come in because folks need to feel they want to work with their clinician. They want to have that, that human touch, if you will. Yeah. You know, you, you started by talking about how really um, the CRT is, a, it's, it's, a, it's an anti-poverty community action agency, right? So you're, you're serving folks who, are, um, who have a, a, a significant financial need, right? And so are you anticipating, Lena, that, that you're, you serve about 100,000 people a year, that that number is going to grow because of coronavirus and how many people have been laid off and, and, and the financial impact that it's having on folks? People that come through our doors um, aren't necessarily, it's an anti-poverty organization. We are here to basically help people meet their needs. Not everybody is, you know, is super poor. You have middle, middle income people that come in, in that need a particular service. They come through our agency as well. Um, it was designed as an anti-poverty agency, but of course over the years has evolved. Um, because we have programs like a Women Empowerment Center, where we have uh, programs that help women design their own businesses. Um, our behavioral health program serves people in all different economic levels. Um, so as I say, it's evolved over the years. Um, we have our assisted living facility, um, which has, you know, the hundreds, hundred senior beds in there. But we know now, of course, with the unemployment rate that is through the roof, um, with folks that, uh, you know, have been able to, uh, that are going to be, you know, defaulting on their rent and with the preventions that are not there, that, that are not going to be there, uh, such, such as the, um, you know, not being able to evict people at this time or basically, you know, make arrangements for their mortgages, there's going to be a lot of need out there. Um, and that's one of the things that we've been working on. We've been working on that um, for the last couple of weeks on what does that, what does that reopening look like? Um, how can we help ameliorate that, you know, together with the city of Hartford um, and the state 
what do we do together, making sure that everybody's on the same page um, and whatever new program design is going to be available, that we coordinate that so the resources uh, are not duplicated and the efforts are not duplicated. But yes, there is an expectation that uh, we're going to come into some trying times within the next year or so. What, what about the, uh, I, I know that you have a, a, a large Meals on Wheels program. You, you're serving food to uh, many of your, your stakeholders or clients every day. Has that been able, have you been able to continue doing that or has that been put on hold? That is one of the most essential programs that we have. Um, you know, we're an essential agency. Um, one would not think it, you know, kind of like coming into when they say, so what essential organizations are gonna stay open, but we are definitely an essential agency. Meals on Wheels is one of the most essential programs. And I will tell you that I really have to shout it out to my team downstairs because they have continued to come in, understanding that they're the ones that are out there actually serving the meals. Um, you know, originally it was kind of like much more scarier than when we got all of the PPE equipment and all of that was coming available. So it's kind of, uh, it, it, we uh, put some really good safeguards in place. Um, but now everything is basically, we call up, we continue to serve Meals on Wheels to homebound seniors. Um, and then we serve congregate sites. So congregate sites kind of were, I think at the beginning of March or so, um, they were shut down, of course, because the congregate sites are designed for seniors to come and socialize and have a, have a meal at a, um, at a senior center or, you know, kind of one of the, uh, one of the building centers, a community center, and we will provide basically um, home style kind of uh, food where we will share. Um, that was shut down, of course, because there was no congregate, congregating. Um, so we are providing the grab and go meals still to those clients. So it basically was a packaged meal. So there was no socializing, but folks were still able to get a meal um, or even two meals. So, um, so we continue to do that and that, can, that program continued to grow. Uh, and the reason, of course, is that, you know, seniors basically are a vulnerable population and whether or not they were COVID positive or had symptoms, they were asked to stay home <clears throat> and folks cannot go out and the folks that can go out cannot go out. So the need for that service grew. Yeah, as, as the need for probably almost all, all of your services are, are growing. Yeah. Lena, I know, you, I know at CRT you, you have a lot of folks who volunteer. You rely on volunteerism. And so how have you been keeping your volunteers engaged during this? We've been keeping our volunteers engaged. Our volunteers have been phenomenal. Um, we have a lot of seniors, um, if you will, that actually... Uh, help us with our uh, meal delivery because we go at our trucks go into certain locations in the suburbs and we drop off at a certain location and we have a lot of volunteers that take all of our meals and they deliver them in those like kind of uh, suburban towns. Um, without them, we would not be able to operate this program because it's so vast that we serve close to over 2,000 meals a day. So, um, so that's, a, that's a huge distribution within a certain period of time. So I believe it's don't quote me from, you know, 10.30 to 12.30 or so on, and they have to be hot, and there are all of these restrictions on them. So um, the volunteer base is really, really um, a huge, huge benefit to us, and we keep them engaged. Um, but, of course, our volunteers are seniors, too. So what had happened during this time is, of course, everybody's everybody's wants to safeguard. Everybody's great. Um, so we did have some... Um, folks, rightly so, um, that didn't want to volunteer, wanted to take good care of themselves, totally understand. 
Uh, we put the word out there for more volunteers, for volunteers to come forward. And we did have a number of volunteers that came forward, so we were able to make it through. So we were really appreciative of that. In addition to the volunteers for the delivery of the meals, our drivers, some of our drivers are part-time and, uh, and you know, got to a point where it was kind of really dicey and folks were kind of uh, concerned for their own health too. So drivers started staying home. So we put out the word to actually ask for more drivers to come in and people volunteered and, uh, and came out to drive for us. So it was a, it was a beautiful thing. Yeah, speaking of beautiful things, I guess that that's the question, right? What are some of the silver linings, some good news stories, some things you want to share with our listeners that highlight some of the good that has come from all of this effort that you and your your staff and your volunteers have been doing? So I think, I just think that people have come together. I mean, there is such a feeling of people like we're all in this and really trying to work together. Um, you know, the nonprofit world, people are doing their different things. They have different program designs. Everybody's going in their own directions and people have actually come together, which I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing to actually work together, um, to not duplicate efforts or resources. Um, I will tell you that um, we had an accident a couple of months ago when one of our drivers crashed our truck and uh, it was practically a new truck which those trucks are like $70,000. And thank God our driver was perfectly fine, which is wonderful that nothing happened to him, um, but the truck was totaled. And uh, we actually put it online um, because it's at a critical time when we're trying to deliver more meals. The truck is $70,000. And to date, we've gotten people coming and donating from over 134 donors, which are new donors to CRT. But we're up to $68,000 for that $70,000 truck. So we're at 97% of what it costs to actually from people contributing um, that are seeing us out there, seeing our workers out there actually delivering meals. So I think that's, that's a wonderful thing when people come together and kind of want to donate at a time like yeah, that is. I mean, we, we, we always hope that, I mean, it does seem like, you know, we, we as a community and Americans in general, when, when we're faced with a, um, tragedy or challenge like this we do kind of come together and rally and support one another and 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 we can only hope that this this lasts and it sustains and that you know maybe because this has been a sustained uh um emergency state of emergency for us as a nation uh and a community that will realize geez you know we, we need to we need to keep this up you know we need to keep working together even when we start opening the state back up um, that uh, we got to help one another, right? I uh, totally agree with you. I think that this has brought people together, working together, and let's hope that it, it stays that way. I mean, we've never experienced something like this, so it has to really, you know, get into the souls of people that this is kind of, uh, this is real, you know, and it's kind of like, take a look at, you know, take a look, look at yourselves. I think take a look at your business model. I mean, certainly we're looking at what is our reopening look like in terms of decompressing our buildings, our offices, um, our programs, you know, going back to, for example, our shelters. Our shelters, we have one shelter that has 100 beds in it. That's not going to look like 100 beds anymore. It's got to go to 50% of capacity now. So it's a whole another business model in terms of also looking at do you open seven days a week and have different shifts so to decompress your offices and give people more of an opportunity to come into your offices for services at different times? So 
I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things to think about. I think a lot of opportunities, um, you know, to think about moving forward. Lena, you mentioned um, that you you reached out for folks and you needed some help in raising money for a new truck for Meals on Wheels delivery, and you you're you're almost there. And I guess that leads us nicely to our last question, which is, you know, what is the one ask that you would have for our listeners? Well, I think the, the one ask, and I know that, you know, of course, financial assistance is always, always needed. Um, and at a time like this, we have to revisit how we outfit all of our offices with all of the PPE that will allow us to come back and to work safely in our environment. Um, but we're going to need funds, and that's where we don't know where we're going with the state or the federal government um, for reliefs for people in the community. Even people in the community need you know, people are talking about masks and gloves and all. There are still a lot of people in the community that don't have access to that. Um, and those folks are going to be coming through our doors. So we need to provide folks with access to this kind of PPE so that they're walking around, that they're safe. So there's going to be um, a lot of things that we're going to figure out at this point in terms of what other needs are out there. We're certainly going to need, we're going to be funding for more basic needs. So those are the things that we're trying to figure out now as we go through the reopening. Um, so more to come, but I, all of the volunteers and the supports that we get for people, we really appreciate. Yeah, great. So, so everyone can get onto the community renewal team website and um, give money or look for, for, uh, for opportunities to volunteer and support the, the work that you're doing, which is just going to continue to become, you know, even more important. It's, it, it's, you, you touch a lot of people, Lena, and all we can do is thank you for that. It's, it's incredible what you guys do. So, so thank you. We always like to ask our guests a few rapid fire questions to close out the interviews, just so people get, get to know you a little bit better. Are you game for that? Sure. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Favorite band? Oh my God. So, all right. The stylistics. All right. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Uh, one superpower. Let's see. That's a good one because I've been watching a lot of those Marvel kind of Netflix movies, like Black Lightning, when there's like the lightning that comes out of your hands. Maybe not <laughs> that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would have to think about that one. No, I'll take the lightning out of the hands. That's a That would be useful at times for sure. <laughs> Lena, if you weren't doing what you do today, what would you be doing? Oh, what would I be doing? I've been doing this for such a long time, and I really enjoy the work that I do here. So I really don't know. Probably, probably foundation work. After actually doing the work, maybe then designing, then helping others do the work. That's great. And, and finally, our, our theme at One Digital this year is being bold. So what does that mean to you? What does being bold mean to you? I think being bold is is doing working doing the right thing, um, taking the chances even though they may not be you know favorite ideas or whatever it may be. Actually moving forward with what you think is right and speaking your mind. Speaking your mind, yeah, putting it out there, right? Lena Rodriguez, CEO, President and CEO of Community Renewal Team CRT. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I've enjoyed our time. Okay, we are excited to have Christine Bianchi, Chief Development Officer at Staywell Health Center on the podcast today. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. Good to be here. 
So Christine, let, let's just dive right in. And, uh, and actually, before we get into the real meat of the episode, why don't you take a minute or two and let us uh, let, let our listeners know what you do at Stay Well, what your mission is, what, what kind of services are, are you offering the community? Sure. So Stay Well has been around since 1972, and we provide healthcare services for the community. Oftentimes, we are serving those who have limited access or um, other struggles around being healthy. And so those tend to be people who are either on Medicaid, um, Medicare only, or who are uninsured. Um, we're located in high need, high need communities. So uh, we have nine sites in Waterbury and one location in Naugatuck. Uh, our general mission is simply that we're committed to the positive health and wellness of the greater Waterbury community. So we do see patients who are from the surrounding suburban towns. Uh, oftentimes we don't think of folks in those towns as, um, as needing access to healthcare, but in fact, um, given the changes in healthcare coverage and really the changes in the healthcare system in general, uh, we, there's, there's a lot of need out there. So we provide medical, dental, and behavioral health services. Uh, we work in a coordinated way so that we're really treating the, the whole person and uh, helping patients navigate um, the, the health system, which has gotten more. So, uh, so serving the kind of um, uh, underserved population, you, that makes you a, a federally qualified health center, is that correct? Health Center, right? We get uh, we receive mon money from the federal government, the Health Resources Service Administration. As many who have any experience with the federal government, they can appreciate that uh, they provide us about 10% of our annual budget, but oversee 110% of what we do. <laughs> so, um, and not so much in. It, in regulations, although there are there are some, but um, in terms of expectations, so it's really a good thing because we have um, very high uh, standards of what we need to be doing, and so we're no longer um, counting widgets, as I say. So it's great that if you come in and you have a positive experience and um, a great visit with your either your dental provider or a medical provider, but what's most important is that um, you have some positive outcome from that other than you know an enjoyable uh, 15 minutes or an hour. So are you healthier? How are you healthier? And we measure that um, in, in really countless ways and then compare ourselves to uh, other health centers across the country and across the state. Uh, Christine, you mentioned already or, or alluded to some, some of the changes or the environment we're in today. And, you know, I guess it was around mid-March when, uh, in this country anyway, we realized, wow, um, that this thing's for real, COVID. And, and um, so things have changed. So how have your operations changed since, since mid-March when, when we were essentially, you know, kind of ordered to stay at shelter at home and uh, the world changed for everybody? Yeah, so uh, as most, we all had to scramble pretty quickly and make decisions and figure things out and change paths. Um, and we really have an exceptional staff who all met that challenge, which is 
um, greatly appreciated and um, just really amazing. And I applaud uh, my colleagues who did so. Um, the first thing, as if people can recall, we back when in March that everyone was concerned about was uh, infection control and uh, PPE. And so we had those same um, immediate uh, needs to, to figure out. So we had to close um, several locations in order to uh, adequately manage PPE from a um, it, you know, number standpoint, as well as security standpoint, um, and also uh, from infection control because it's, it's much more challenging in some of the sites, the, some of the locations we're in, uh, obviously school closed, but we were also in, in some homeless shelters and such. So that was the first step. Uh, the second was that we um, shortly thereafter closed our dental department except that we kept uh, emergency services available in dental, which is critically important because we wanna keep people out of the emergency room. If you're going in for a toothache, you don't wanna leave with uh, COVID-19. So mm -hmm. we've been um, working with our emergency room at our local hospitals and, um, and seeing about 15 patients a day actually for those uh, emergency dental services. Oh wow, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's not great people are having dental emergencies, but <laughs> it's great that you're able to accommodate them and keep them out of the out of the uh, emergency room. Right. We also, uh, when with this started and we had to make that decision, we also committed to completing the delivery of uh, any dentures or partial denture that had been started that patients were in the process of. So. Um, we wanted to make certain that we got those delivered and because it can be a very long process and you know if you imagine uh how many things are impacted by not having teeth you know your nutrition um, mm. life willingness and ability this willingness i guess more so to smile and um so we wanted to make certain that we we completed that delivery and we've been able to do so in and for the smaller group um in a safe and uh, safe way for patients what about, so what about, were you offering any telehealth kind of services prior to, or um, has that, have you done any of that as a response to COVID? Yes, so I think that's one of the exciting developments that have happened from this pandemic and um, crisis and really tragedy in many ways. Um, is that the world, the healthcare world has um, evolved and had to quickly adopt uh, telehealth. And so um, we, like, like other healthcare providers, um, scurried in response. And so on our end, we needed to do several things. You need to choose a platform that is going to work on both sides um, for patients as well as for the providers and one that is secure so keeping um, the, um, the visit, the exchange, the information secure and confidential for patients, one that's easy to use. Um, we had to get the actual um, hardware for providers to bring home and um, have available in their own home, making sure that everybody has access to Wi-Fi, um, which you know sometimes we don't think about, but is you know very real uh, sometimes where we're located in, in Waterbury, uh, we have staff who live um, further out who maybe have, you know, spotty connection, that sort of thing. 
Um, so handling that. And then how are we going to manage um, who is receiving a telehealth visit versus an in-person visit, um, any signatures for new patients, things of that sort. Um, initially, we split our uh, medical team into two groups. So we have um, a team that is in the office seeing patients because there still is a need um, for seeing patients, particularly I'd say in uh, women's health, um, so for prenatal patients, um, and then for um, younger children, for infants. Um, so those are probably our two groups that we still um, bring into the office. And But again, with the um, limited services in person, you have fewer people in the building, you're able to manage infection control um, and that sort of thing. But um, telehealth has been going really well. Uh, it's been um, very positive. The other critical thing is that uh, regulators and payers needed to jump on board very quickly and approve uh, payment for telehealth. So one might wonder, well, why weren't we doing this before? Well, that was typically the reason, was because most of telehealth wasn't reimbursable. Um, and now, now it is uh, from almost every, every um, insurer or, or funding source. And so if there's a silver lining here, um, that's a really good thing. And hopefully that, uh, that you know, policy stays in place um, because I think there are there are a lot of advantages. It's not you know perfect for every scenario, but there certainly are um, a lot of advantages for um, for both for patients primarily. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the convenience uh, of it, you know, for those for those situations where it's appropriate and where you can you know diagnose uh, over the phone or through with video and get that prescription and it's uh, from a cost and convenience standpoint, such a great thing. And I think you're right is that, you know, there are a few silver linings that come out of every tragedy and every crisis. And that's one of them is this expansion of telehealth uh, usage and, and utilization uh, is great. And you guys were able to very quickly adapt there. Your patients or customers, um, their, their needs changed in that they had to kind of adapt and, and maybe do some more things over the phone, but how else did, did their needs change? Maybe one specific question that I have is, do you offer um, COVID testing? Yeah, so I think that, um, uh, unfortunately, a lot of patients have stayed away from um, services, thinking that services are not being offered. And so that's one thing where we're uh, working now to get the word out so that patients do take advantage of uh, telehealth services. And actually in behavioral health, it's um, via conference, um, via, uh, I'm sorry, video conference. Yeah. And, and so um, the quality is there. But I think there's a lot of people who are suspect as to whether or not you know, that quality is there. Like, you know, how could you really you know, treat me over the phone? Um, but particularly those patients who are established patients, um, there is a lot that can be done over the phone because of familiarity. Um, mm -hmm. And given that we are um, fighting this new virus, uh, and we've heard so much about how those with underlying conditions are, um, are really struggling the most, it's really critical that folks continue to 
um, follow up with providers and monitor their any chronic disease or, or their health. So in terms of additional needs, we certainly have been mindful of um, individuals who are no longer working uh, and um, their ab ability to afford health care. Um, and that includes our staff who were furloughed. Um, so we had about 40 people who were furloughed. So mm -hmm. uh, things we're doing to support them. Um, and we're definitely seeing a lot more anxiety in, in patients. And so uh, working to support them. Christina, just on that point about, you know, the, the increase in anxiety, stress and anxiety, and maybe in some instances depression, are, are you finding your patients, your established patients are utilizing the video uh, uh, behavioral health consultations? They're taking advantage of that? Yes. We actually have a waiting list, unfortunately, because we, oh, have, wow. we have had people um, request services. So we, when we started this, we did not have a waiting list. And um, we quickly had to not only develop a system for providing behavioral health services, but then a system for bringing in new patients for behavioral health. Um, and we've also had to develop a mechanism for seeing patients who don't have access to um, a smartphone or some other device where they can do um, video uh, therapy. And so we actually were easily, pretty easily able to solve that. So what we have is we have our behavioral health, one of our behavioral health suites set up with the technology set up and we schedule you know, individual appointments for those patients and they come in and the technology is set up for them and they go in on, you know, on their own in the therapy room and, um, and connect via uh, um, the computer to the therapist who's working from home. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great creative response to that issue of folks don't always have the technology at home uh, that they need to have a successful tele-consultation. Tele Right, and they also have, uh, some people have limited minutes on their phone, and so that's a barrier for them. And um, really, when you're doing therapy, as opposed to medicine, which is often, uh, especially with established patients, is, is verbal, um, you know, the, the video is really important for that rapport, for, um, you know, sensing the tone, the, the, your physical response, your body language, all that sort of thing. So it's, it works much better um, via video conferencing. Right, right. And then you've got to have somebody, I'm assuming, then between each session in that room, uh, disinfect and, and clean and, and do all that stuff, right? Yes, we do. We see, we provide about 100,000 visits a year and uh, for 25,000 people. So if all of the, if, if that, those numbers of patients were still coming into the center, it would be really difficult to manage that infection control. Christine, what, any other challenges that COVID-19 has presented to, to stay well health that we didn't talk about yet? Sure, well, we, you'd asked earlier about testing. So initially we were provided with um, about 40 tests and uh, by the state health department, but when testing is talked about on a larger scale, what has not been um, really talked about, and, and understandably so, it's in the weeds of the, of the process, 
is the need to do testing, but also keeping um, everyone safe. And I think that's why you see this um, drive up method and all the testing being done outdoors. I know that, um, you know, when it first came out, we thought, oh, how convenient, but really it's an infection control um, approach. So if we were to have done those tests in our center, uh, because we don't have um, air pressurized rooms, then you would have any virus in the air would then travel and could travel to other exam rooms and expose patients or expose you know, all those providers. And we don't have the um, extensive PPE that you see in the hospitals and particularly when this first started. So we were not, uh, so we provided, we shared those tests with a local hospital and uh, we're not doing the testing ourselves. We have since, been working with the National Guard and the State Health Department and have done um, three uh, testing clinics. So the first two were rapid testing and we did um, 75 each um, session and we actually identified um, six individuals um, who were positive and, um, and, and they were staff. We have, so we have six staff who, who were um, who've had COVID-19. So, um, you know, our staff is, is also on the front line. Recent challenge that has come up as we talk about reopening our dental program and we're waiting the uh, society and the CDC and so forth for recommendations. We've identified that um, in addition to uh, this equipment that we're going to be purchasing that will um, uh, they're air pure, they're two kinds of air purifiers and they work to take all viruses out of the air within like three seconds. Um, they're really, it's really uh, fascinating, powerful equipment. And so we'll purchase one for, actually there's two different devices that we'll purchase for each exam room. Um, so that'll cost about $55,000. Um, the PPE that will be required for the dentist and the dental assistant will cost an additional $40 for each visit that is unreimbursable. You know, and we cannot pass those costs on to our patients. So, you know, th those are challenges that, um, that we'll have to figure out. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a huge financial burden for that's a huge cut in revenue. And, and um, you know, as you know, we're not gonna just flip a switch and go right back to where we were. Uh, before all this hit so right well, well, so we'll have to do also a lot of um uh we don't tip, we don't always call it you know advertising but marketing promotion outreach to patients because there's there's also a long-term impact of having people absent from care so dental for example you know folks who maybe had a treatment plan because they had certain needs identified they had let's say three cavities you know, the longer that this goes on, three cavities turns into five, and you know, or a cavity turns into a root canal, and so that's really significant. We, I sit on the school readiness council for uh, the city of Waterbury, and we've talked about um, the requisite uh, immunizations for kids to go into preschool into into preschool. So, if those um, receipt of those immunizations have been postponed, what's gonna happen in the fall? How do we make sure that we have schedules available and we have 
you know, families bringing in their, their kids to get those requisite immunization so that they can get into school. Um, so there's a, there's a domino effect on things that, that will need to be addressed going forward. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to continue to be flexible and, you know, p pivot when you, when you need to. You had mentioned, we already talked about one silver lining of all of this, which is the you're being able to execute on offering telemedicine, uh, including behavioral health telemedicine uh, and, and the use of it. But what other silver linings, Christine, or, or what other good news stories do you have for us that have come out of all the, the hard work that you and your team are doing? It's amazing how everybody has come together and the communication and the um, just the kindness in terms of the patients that people are um, really just functioning with uh, in an incredibly stressful situation where you might think that uh, or you might expect that you know people are stressed out and um, you know nerves are frayed and and you might see exhibit you know see some of that exhibited in their behavior and uh, I'm really um, thrilled. And, and proud that that hasn't happened. I think that um, that folks wake up and they're um, they're employed or, and they're healthy and or healthy and um, and grateful for that. And we do what we have to do. So um, that's that's been wonderful. Um, I also think that um, we were able to do something. Uh, for our uh, those staff who were furloughed. So we had approximately um, 40 staff members who were furloughed, primarily from um, closing down the dental department. And um, very difficult decisions, very difficult um, for our organization. And um, so there were a couple things that we were able to do. One is, is that we had um, a, uh, an available pot of money from uh, that is earmarked for um, staff appreciation and, and staff meetings and things of that sort. And so we were able to um, send gift cards uh, to our staff who were furloughed. I think the, the, the point is, is that, you know, still keeping in touch, caring for and including those furloughed, furloughed staff as um, as our stay well family and doing everything we can to um, continue to support them um, for you know until they're able to come back. Sounds like you're saying that, that one of the silver linings is that in in a, maybe sort of a strange way um, that the stay well family, you, your team, the entire stay well team has in fact gotten even closer together and more supportive uh and caring of one another you know the importance of being patient and taking it day by day because mm. as we this pandemic things have changed every day uh christine what what would be the one ask that you would have of anyone listening to this podcast right now hmm. can i have two <laughs> i'll give you two yes thank you uh First ask would be um, for folks really to accept the fact that we've learned, hopefully we've learned that now is the time for us all to prioritize our health and, um, and not take it for granted. And so what does that mean? Well, the first thing is, is that if you, know, you don't have a primary care physician, which a lot of folks don't, um, they're disconnected for, from care for a whole host of reasons. Uh, now's a really good time to get one. 
to you know call your insurance company and see who is in the network ask um, friends family colleagues that you respect who they recommend um, and some are doing uh, new patient um, telehealth visits so you may be able to um, get that done. And I think that um, now when all of our schedules have been canceled um, and, uh, it, it, you know, it's a good thing to, um, to put on your to-do list and, and perhaps you don't have to wait um, because if we've learned anything, you know, we need to um, A, have that link. We need, you know, tests ordered. Nobody could get tested uh, until recently unless they had an order from a physician. Um, but also, we want to make sure that um, our bodies are uh, as, as healthy and strong as possible to combat whatever may come our way. Um, so that would be my first ask. Uh, and my second ask is that um, I believe that, like the, the expression that we hear, uh, politics is local, no, politics is local. In many ways, while this is a global pandemic, we've also learned that health is so um we think about our health being local for the first time now with this pandemic when we go to the grocery store when we go to the gas station in that case you're not is it's it's not a matter of what's going on six states away or what's going on you know across the pond as they say it's how you know who's been ill or healthy in your same town and has pumped gas and are, is the virus being spread through there? We need to be invested in the health and wellness of our community, if for nothing else, for the sake of our own health. Um, and so I would ask that um, folks think about how they can, going forward, get involved in um, making certain that our your community, our community is um, as healthy as possible, whether it's the social determinants of health so there are all sorts of things that impact our health, access to parks, um, you know, rules on, on no smoking in parks or walking trails um, or making certain that health centers like ours are available so that whether you're insured or you're not, um, you know, that you have access to that health care. And I know we're always looking for volunteers to help us. Um, strengthen our healthcare system so that we can provide all that care. Uh, yeah, and two great asks. So you spent uh, a, a lot of time with me, which I really appreciate, Christine. But we, we, I want one more minute, if you don't mind, because we end every episode uh, with every guest with some rapid fire questions, just to get to know you a little bit better. Okay. So are you are you game for that? All right, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Don't you don't have to try too hard. Whatever comes to mind right away, okay? Cats or dogs? Dogs. Favorite band? Mm, I don't know. Barbara Streisand. She's not really a band, but <laughs> No, that's that's good. That's fair. <laughs> if you had if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Oh. Um uh to be able to teleport myself. Popular one. Christine, if you weren't doing doing what you do today, what would you be doing? Um, I think I'd be an attorney, uh, fighting, fighting the good fight for, um, social justice in, in the courtroom. Awesome. And lastly, our theme at One Digital this year is being bold. So what does being bold mean to you? 
Well, uh, historically being bold to me has meant um, speaking up for, uh, particularly when it's unpopular. Um, and so while I still believe that, I'm also learning that um, it, uh, I have to be mindful that it doesn't always mean that I need a, um, a machine gun for every fight. <laughs> Sometimes being bold, you can have a bold thought and intent, and, but find a more delicate way to um, boldly go where you want to go. Great. Okay. Well, thanks again, Christine. All right. Thank you. Stay well, everybody. All right, everybody, we're excited to have with us today on the episode, Jason Jakubowski, President and CEO at FoodShare. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. I appreciate it. So let's start off, if you don't mind, by taking a minute or two and uh, allowing you to describe uh, what FoodShare does. What's your mission? What's your vision? How are you serving the, the community here in Connecticut? Well, FoodShare is the uh, is is the Feeding America food bank for Hartford and Tallinn County here in uh, Connecticut. There's about 118,000 people who are food insecure uh, here in in Hartford and Tallinn County, and our job is to aggregate food and deliver it to um, more than uh, 60 mobile sites, more than uh, 250 partner pantries, and uh, other locations around the area in order to help uh, feed the residents of uh, Hartford and Tallinn County. We've been, uh, we're almost 40 years old and uh, we've been doing this, uh, doing this a long time. Last year, we distributed 11.5 million meals. And we obviously expect that to go up significantly this year, given the, uh, the work we've been doing with the, the COVID response. And, and when you say distribute, how, are, you, are you kind of delivering to homes or are you setting up food? How, 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 do, how are you doing that distribution? You have two major ways of distributing food. One is to our partner programs and to pantries in the area. There's about 250 pantries that we serve. We inventory our food. They order the food from us. We either deliver it to them or they come pick it up. And then people obviously go to get it at those pantries. That's one method. Uh, the other method is we have a very robust mobile food share program. We have two mobile food share trucks that go out into the community. You've probably seen them driving around. Um, and they stop at uh, 64 different places in every two week cycle. So every two weeks it stops at the same place at the same time unloads the, 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 the truck and uh, individuals get food, pack the truck back up and go on to the next site. So um, that's, that's the, other, the other type of distribution we do. Since the, the COVID uh, uh, crisis has begun, uh, we've actually added a third distribution, which is a drive-through distribution at Rentschler Field in uh, East Hartford. And uh, that's open every weekday from 8.30 a.m. until noon and cars can literally line up and drive through and uh, they'll get about, you know, any, about 20 pounds of, of food. So you anticipated my, my next question, which is what are some of the challenges that the coronavirus pandemic has presented to food shares and not-for-profit? And one of them was, you, you, I, as you just said, you had to kind of get creative and, and introduce this third method of getting the food distributed, right? Yeah, we, we've had to, I mean, the, the, the coronavirus has changed everything that we have, uh, just about everything that we've done. It, it has impacted everything that we've done here at FoodShare from an, an, in a number of different ways. We typically have about 6,500 volunteers a year here at FoodShare. Um, that's about uh, the equivalent of 28 full-time staff members. We typically have 30 volunteers every morning in our warehouse, 30 every afternoon because of social distancing. We cannot accommodate more than six at a time. 
So volunteer hours have dropped off dramatically. It's forced us to go out and, and, and hire some part-time temporary staff. Uh, and, and again, maybe not do some of the things that we had been doing, uh, doing before. We have waived fees for all of our uh, partner pantries and partner programs. So that's obviously taken a financial hit. Uh, we have had to enforce social distancing at our mobile sites. And instead of letting individuals choose their own food, we've been pre-bagging the food for them. That was a very different thing that we did. And then obviously building that entire uh, 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 drive-through distribution at Rentschler Field, um, that was something that, that we, we came up with from scratch and just figuring out how to distribute 40,000 pounds of food a day over there. It's, uh, it's, it's been interesting. The biggest impact on us though, is that, in a t is that we typically get uh, more than 75% of our food donated to us. Uh, during this COVID crisis, because food has been affected and you, know, you just go to the grocery stores and you see some of the empty shelves there, uh, the product just isn't there uh, for donation uh, by, by many of the grocery chains. So we have had to purchase food. And now, and it's not just us at FoodShare, you've got 200 food banks across America that are all competing for the same uh, for the same amount of food. We're not in the business of buying food um, yet. That's what we've had to do the last couple of weeks. So uh, this this is this this virus has completely changed our completely changed our, our our service and delivery model. So you you hadn't budgeted in right. in 2020 to have to be purchasing food, right? So in, and you so you've got a revenue hit because you're waiving fees, but now you've got this additional expense. I mean. How are you handling that? The, the only way that we are able to, to keep doing what we're doing and keep up with the demand is because of the generosity of the community out there. We have never, uh, we have never raised more money than we have in the last two months. Of course, I mean, the caveat, of course, we have never spent more money than we have in the last two months. Um, but people out there are sustaining, a, uh, are, are sustaining our operation. And we've had some major contributions like uh, the Dalio Foundation uh, gave us half a million dollars, 4CT gave us half a million dollars, a lot of corporations, Bank of America, uh, uh, Stop and Shop, uh, Big Y have given us major donations. Uh, uh, philanthropic organizations like the Hartford Foundation and uh, the American Savings Foundation but mostly individuals. I mean, just people who have said, hey, I, I see these lines on TV and I, I know somebody who's hurting and I know somebody who's lost their job. You know, here's a $50 contribution. You know, that, that's all I can do. But, you know, we, we, we need to, to, everybody needs to step up and do something. Uh, that's the only reason that we've been able to continue doing what we're uh, doing, what we're doing. You're correct from a budgeting standpoint. We, uh, it's very difficult in a typical year, we spend about, in all of last year, we spent about $300,000 on purchased food. Um, this, in the last two months, just since COVID started, we spent $1.5 So people's donations are going directly to purchasing food. It has, it has blown a hole in our budget. But again, thankfully, the generosity of this community is, is helping to fill that hole. Wow, that's that's <laughs> yeah. It's 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 turned everything upside down for you. In 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 particular, the the whole financial model. Obviously, yeah. wow. This is maybe a two part question, which is have have the needs of your stakeholders changed at all? And, and maybe they haven't. Maybe it's just that there are more people now than ever. Am I correct in assuming that? You mentioned you kind of there's 118,000 people in Hartford and Tallinn County who are 
who don't have enough food, essentially, right? Is that that number is growing because of this virus? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, obviously that number is captured at a snapshot in time, and and we haven't had time to capture that that particular snapshot. But I can tell you, you know, that if 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 the number in in typical times is 118,000, I have to imagine there's at least 150,000 people in Hartford and Talon County who are food insecure right now. And the reason we know that is because we have done, uh, we've have a, we had our research team do a, a survey of, of cars at, uh, that have been coming through Renshaw Field. And what they have, uh, what we've learned from that is that 72% of the households that have come through Renshaw Field have said they have never used our services before. Um, and that to me, that was just a staggering number. And that means these are people who have never experienced food insecurity, people who are new to food insecurity, people who have, have, have just until two months ago, you know, were gainfully employed, uh, were, were getting a steady paycheck, and now, you know, through no fault of their own, have found themselves not knowing where their next meal is coming from. So uh, that's, a, that's a scary thing. So yes, there, there has absolutely been a, a, a buildup in the number of people that need our services. Among the people that, that get our services, the need within them has, has increased as well. Our pantries uh, have, have seen a 30% increase in the amount of food that they have been distributing. And at our mobile food share sites, some of the sites uh, have doubled in terms of the number of people that are going there. And I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's one, of, one of the biggest misnomers is people say, oh, that's nice, you know, Hartford and Talent County. So you deliver food to Hartford and Manchester and New Britain and East Hartford. Yes, we do serve all those towns. But we have mobile sites in, in, in Burlington and in Avon and Simsbury and Farmington. And, and the number of people in those lines have jumped up. This virus could care less what your zip code is. This virus could care less what your, what your occupation is. Um, you know, it, it's having a, a large economic effect on, on everybody. And again, people who never thought they'd be in this position are finding themselves suddenly uh, in need of, uh, of, of food. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to get political, but I mean, the, the, yes, the, the virus itself can, is, can be deadly, uh, but, but joblessness and hunger can be, you know, in, in their own ways, deadly as well. So, you know, thank God for, for organizations like FoodShare that are helping to, helping to solve that problem. Yeah, and we know, Jeff, that the, um, one of the things that we, that we know, because we've seen this in other economic downturns, is that the impact on a place like food share and other human service organizations will outlast the virus itself. If the virus itself was solved tomorrow, um, which I, I'm not a scientist, but it doesn't sound like it's going to be, but if, even if the virus itself were to complete, magically disappear tomorrow, um, there would probably still be at least an eight to 12 month lag on, on, on economic impact. We would, you know, the, the world's not gonna just snap uh, its fingers and, and go back to the way that it was instantaneously. So we're prepared for that. We know that this is not just a short-term endeavor for us. This is a this is a longer-term endeavor that we're going to have to uh, that we're going to be dealing with for a while. Yeah, I think it, it, there's a, a scary percentage. I'm I'm going to get the number wrong, but somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the of the jobs lost might be permanent losses, um, which is that's terrifying. Absolutely. You will definitely see a lot of societal change come out of this, you know, for better or worse, um, you know, but you definitely will see some societal change come out of this. And again, I'm not an economist, but uh, clearly incidences like these 
have a permanent economic effect on, on, some, on some sectors. I think we all know people who were in jobs that are literally sitting there saying, how's this going to work? I mean, how, you know, uh, how am I going to go back? Um, maybe I need to, to, to get another, another vocation. Maybe I need something. I, I, I don't know. It's, um, I think, the, you know, everything, everything ramped down so fast and so sudden that I think there's some expectation that everything's going to go back the same way. And it's not, it's going to ramp. It's going to be a long ramp up before we get back economically to where we were before. So you're going to need that that sort of spike in both corporate and individual generosity that you talked about. You 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 need that to be sustained for a while. We wouldn't be able to 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 do what we do without that support. Uh, again, we've had to hire additional additional help because we don't have the same level of volunteer support that we have had in the past. So you know we expect that to 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 be that way for a while and what i've said to people is they're like how are you doing are you are you guys all right you know are you guys underwater we're doing all right we are spending a, a lot of money we're doing okay and we mm. will continue to do okay as long as we're bring, raising money at the same at the same clip we yeah. know how these cycles go at some point we're going to hit a wall and we are going to start to see those donations start to come down a bit you know we need to be prepared for that as as, as well we need to ramp down our operation uh, and get back to quote unquote normal the same way that every other operation needs to. But for, for now, uh, the, the community is absolutely sustaining us. And I think we'll need to for about a, at least another eight to 12 months. Just getting back to the volunteers, how are you, so you need to keep the volunteers engaged, right? So that once we do get back to some degree of normalcy, you can turn that spigot back on. So, so how are you doing that? How are you keeping your volunteers engaged right now? Well, I think we've done a couple of things. One is, is we have a great core of, of volunteers at Rensselaer Field because it's outside. Obviously we have more capacity to be able to, I think we have about 30 volunteers a day over there. We have a lot of individual volunteers, maybe many of them over the age of 65 that have just said, I can't you know, I want to support you guys. Keep sending me your emails. I can't volunteer right now, but I'll be back. We've also had a, a number of corporations and, and Connecticut corporations are great about su supporting us with volunteers. Um, uh, 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 Cigna, uh, the Hartford, Aetna, uh, uh, Eversource, Bank of America, they all bring volunteers here. They all have volunteer days in which, you know, they basically shut down a part of their office and then, and then bring individuals over. So, um, you know, that's, that's great. I mean, I, I, we, we enjoy that. I believe that, I mean, as long as we continue our relationship with those corporations, uh, they will continue to send us, uh, to send us volunteers. Their issue right now is that they don't have anybody, that many of them don't have many people physically in their building to send over. Yeah, and that's going to happen slowly as well. I mean, even phase one of the reopening that started yesterday is, you know, we're, we're, encouraging work from home still for those who can do it um so as, you know, as are we i mean we're, yeah. we're we're the we're the same we're the same way so you know you've got the drive through at Rensselaer field now but are you still supplying the the food pantries and doing the mobile food share trucks absolutely the 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 Rensselaer field distribution and um i i say this in every interview i give about it is a supplement to our normal program. It is not in lieu of our normal program. In fact, as of this week, we have 100% of our mobile sites up and running. Uh, a couple of them had taken a few weeks off because they didn't have the volunteers to be able to run the site. 
but this week we were able to have 100% of them back. So we have 64 mobile sites still running. We have about 83% of our pantries are still up and running and we've been able to fulfill um, most of their requests in terms of, uh, in terms of quantity of, of, of food. Variety has been tough. Variety has definitely been tough, but that's, you know, that's that, that you see that even at, at the grocery store. But we've been able to, to sustain those increases and add uh, Renshaw Field on, uh, on, on top of it. Here's a stat for you, Jeff. Last month, um, for the first time in our, in our 40 years of existence, our warehouse took in and, and distributed over 2 million pounds of food. We've never done that in one month before. Two, over 2 million in, in one month, did you say? Pounds of food came in and out of and in and out of the building. Yes, it's a mat. I mean, these are these are massive numbers. This is just these are the, the, this is a massive amount. And that is just Hartford and Tallinn counties, Hartford, correct? That's only Hartford and Tallinn County. You include Connecticut Food Bank and the rest of the state. I mean, those numbers are a, a, a jump even uh, even higher. And I always say this. I mean, this is Connecticut. We're the richest state in the country. Um, if, if this is how it is in Connecticut, I understand when I see those lines of 10,000 cars lining up outside of the uh, uh, Dallas Cowboy Stadium and, and things like that. So it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah, it's, it's, a little, it's really mind blowing. You already, we always kind of like to find some silver lining and you mentioned the, the increase in donations and, and, and the generosity of those who are supporting financially and, um, and how you've expand, expanded your your reach. Um, but any other sort of good news stories, stories you'd like to share about, you know, what's coming out of the food share efforts? Yeah, again, I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go on the roof of, of, uh, of Rentschler. I took the elevator. I did not climb. I didn't climb up to the, to the roof of Rentschler. I leg legitimately made my way to the roof of Rentschler. And it was early in the morning and it was cold and it was interesting. I got, I got an aerial view of the, 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 the massive line of cars just waiting to, uh, in line. And I think there were a couple of thoughts. My first reaction was, wow, this is really sad. I mean, this is, this is, this is heartbreaking for some of these families, especially those who have never utilized a service like this before. But the positive spin I've tried to put on it is that it's, it's also uplifting because there was a solution and it was a community-based solution. You had people donating to us. You had a dedicated, dedicated group of, of staff members uh, uh, working at the, at, 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 the, at the site and out at our pantries. You ha we have volunteers and our pantries have volunteers. People have really come together. I have seen that in the last, I, I've seen some pretty difficult things in the last couple of months. Um, I've also seen some uplifting things and people just donating their time uh, and people donating their their their, uh, their their talent and their treasure in order to helping out an organization like this. It's it's been humbling. Um, yes, there are a lot of people that are hurting, um, but this is a strong community that really takes care of its own. Great, good good to hear. And common theme too, this idea that folks are really rallying and, and supporting one another. Yeah, Jason, what's the one ask you would have for those listening right now? The, the, the best thing that people can do in order to, in order to help us is to go to foodshare.org and make a donation. Um, that is our lifeblood right now. We are, able to, we are only able to continue these programs as long as we're able to fund them. We're only able to, to, to deliver food as long as we're able to acquire food. Um, if you wanna collect cans uh, uh, in your neighborhood, 
we encourage you to donate those to your local pantry because they definitely need them. But if you want to make a monetary donation, please visit foodshare.org and uh, make a monetary donation. You could even sign up to volunteer either here at our warehouse or at Rentschler Field or out at one of our mobiles and just pass the word along to your friends and let them know. Um, you know, if A, if they have the means to donate, that would be great. But B, if they need help, I think we all know somebody who, who is, is, is unemployed right now. Um, if they need help, let them know. Foodshare.org, uh, they can get all the information in terms of uh, where they can go in order, to, in order to get help. Jason, we end every episode with each guest with some rapid fire questions, just so our listeners can get to know you better a little personally, if you don't mind playing that game with us. You good, you good with that? Go for it. So cats or dogs? Dogs, but not by much. I'm allergic to both. <laughs> All right. Favorite band? Uh, the Beatles. If you had, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Ooh, uh, I wouldn't mind flying. I'd like that. That'd be pretty cool. If you weren't doing what you do today, what would you be doing? I'd probably be home taking care of my kids and, and writing novels. That would probably be what I would uh, do. Writing novels. Love that. Awesome. And finally, our theme at One Digital, Jason, this year is being bold. What does being bold mean to you? It means taking risks. It means standing up for what you believe in. And it means, you know, sometimes even if you don't know what the outcome is going to be, uh, really doing your best in order to go out and practice what you believe and, and, and help your, your community. Great. Uh, Jason Jakubowski, President and CEO of FoodShare, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you very much. great work being done all across Connecticut. We are so fortunate and very thankful for all the time and effort these organizations, plus countless others, are putting in to support our community uh, right now. Uh, it's, it's needed now more than ever. So if you like these episodes, be sure to leave a review and subscribe so you can be the first to know when the next episode will drop. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been a very special episode of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR.